That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Welcome to Dark Talk. When I was 14, I knew this older guy named Jeff who lived in a small apartment near my house. Jeff was 20 and a mystery. He dropped out of high school in grade 10 like a 1930s farm kid, except there was no farm. Regardless, most everyone knew him as a pleasant enough guy, though weird and Dumb, I guess. Jeff was big, around 6'4", and had to be pushing 300 pounds. He did odd jobs like mowed lawns and shoveled snow. Word was that he collected some sort of disability. If you needed to do some unraised drinking, Jeff was your guy. Cigarettes? It'd cost you a few smokes, but Jeff would do it no problem. He'd even have weed on occasion. All the kids knew Jeff. Jeff was cool. I had a group of friends with which I'd spend my days hanging around a local convenience store, trying to get weed or smokes or booze to pass the time. It seemed to be all that we talked about. We were bored. We wanted to get fucked up constantly. Usually what we'd do is pile together our little coins and try to get enough for a pack of smokes or a gram of pot to split between about eight people. I lived further away from the store than most of my friends. They all lived in houses that sat on courts that could be accessed by a nearby park. I lived closer to the downtown portion of town, over a hill and past Jeff's apartment. About a ten-minute ride on my questionable 10-speed. Word had hit our group that Jeff had some weed. Since I was the only one with a bike that day, I was nominated to ask him if we could pick up. Everybody handed over their tunies and loonies, about 20 bucks worth, and I dropped them into my oversized homie pants. They were a dark pastel blue with VCR-sized pockets on the back. I had to tuck the bottoms into my socks to avoid getting ganked up in the bike chain. I zoomed off, narrowly dodging half a jolt soda some dickhead tossed at me as I pulled away. Eight minutes later, I ripped into the back of Jeff's apartment where there was a little playground and a dilapidated gazebo. We'd all been there at one time or another, but always as a group. I looked up to Jeff's balcony and there he was, looking back down at me, smoking. You coming up? He yelled down. Yep, 
I probably replied, or maybe I said for sure. I forget how my young hooligan self spoke. Jeff seemed extremely excited to see me. He gave me a big handshake hug thing, and we headed into his apartment. If Jeff wasn't hyper, he was completely depressed. I realize now he was probably bipolar. This was one of those manic occasions. He kept playfully shoving me and slapping my shoulder. I sat on a couch and he dropped himself down right beside me, causing an impression I had to skitter out of so as not to be cuddling the guy. So you looking? Jeff asked. Yeah, we want 20, I said. Or, gee, gee, we want a twin piece. Is embarrassingly closer. I remember Jeff looking at me in a conspiratory way then. He said, I want to show you something, but you can't tell fucking anyone. If you do, I'll fuck you up. Jeff was a member of the Latin Kings, apparently. Now, if this happened to me today, I'd say, save it. Anything with that caveat I could do without. Instead, I likely said, true, true. I I Jeff grabbed me by the arm and escorted me up a small set of stairs, then down a hall to a dimly lit bedroom. His bedroom. He pushed me inside and I immediately felt compromised. Warning shots exploded through my body and mind. My breathing slowed down and my fists clenched. My heart pounded in my head. I'd been in my fair share of fights and uncomfortable situations by this point in my life, and I'd learned to act as soon as I felt threatened, regardless of how thwarted bullies and shit people will accuse you of being a paranoid maniac for doing so. The room smelled like farts, and there was laundry everywhere. Dirty light filtered through a Canadian flag that had been nailed over the lone window. Jeff opened a door and clean sunlight streamed out of it, making everything a little less rapey, but a little more confusing somehow. I mean, if you're going to do it, just do it, am I right? Come take a look, Jeff said. I entered the walk-in closet and there sat three magnificent pot plants. It was like walking into a room full of friends. They honestly seemed friendly and the bright light that reflected off the tinfoil-covered walls dashed away the foreboding I just felt. Jeff went into a storage tote and pulled out a big bag of weed. He asked if I had something to put it in. I pulled some foil from my pack of smokes and he laid two fat nugs within it, then wrapped it up and handed it to me. Don't say nothing to nobody, Kate. I trust you. I nodded nervously into his stone pie face, then refocused on the little grow room. I complimented the setup, and we looked at the plants for a while, me pretending to know what the hell he was talking about with the pH and the flowering and the strains. Soon enough we left the closet, and just as I thought I was finally free, Jeff reached between my legs with one arm, brought the other over my shoulder, and clamped his hands together. He then picked me up like luggage and slammed me on his rumpled-looking floor matches, and started tickling me. We wrestled for a moment, him giggling a little and me struggling in silent terror, but the gorilla had me mounted in short order. I could feel he had a petrified tube stake in his pocket. He gave it a thrust along my leg and smiled down at me. Get the fuck off me, Jeff. I swear I'll fucking kill you. I desperately bluffed. Jeff looked hurt. He had me pinned to the bed, his baseball mitt-sized hands pressing on my shoulders. Finally, he sighed. Shit, man, I'm just joking around. Jeff looked like he was going to cry. You gotta relax, he spat, then aggressively pushed himself up off me. I scrambled from the bare mattress, which was stiff in spots. Not trying to be gross, it was just gross. Jeff looked at me like a scorned little kid. I said something like, It's alright, I just don't play around like that. It's cool, it's cool, Jeff kept saying. It's cool. We left his room and I could still see myself casually exiting, fixing my stretch t-shirt, trying to project an aura that everything was indeed cool so as not to set Jeff off as he moodily loomed over me as we walked the narrow hallway to his living room. I went straight to my shoes and started jamming my feet into them, fumbling with the chain lock Jeff had latched when I entered his lair. 
Jeff approached casually, still muttering, It's cool. It's cool, to himself. As I opened the door, he again lectured that I had to learn how to relax. Aye, I said again, getting half my body out the door. He made one last power move before I escaped by grabbing my arm and in a serious whisper said, Come back whenever, but just you. And don't say shit. Aye, later, I blurted, then took my arm back, skittered down the stairs and out of the building's shadow. I grabbed my bike and ripped out of the complex into one of the brightest and greenest summer days I have in my memory. I returned to my friends a hero, pulling out my smokes and producing the stuff. They all couldn't believe the count I got him. I never told them about Jeff's tickle boner, and from then on I continued to get weed from the guy. Jeff was always nice to me, he never pulled any weird moves again. But from time to time I'd come over and there'd be a younger kid there, probably around 13 years old. His name was Shane, I think. He lived in the apartment and was a foster kid. Shout out to Shane. I'm about 100% certain that kid was getting tossed into regular tickle fights. Jeff always had his hands on the kid, punching him or grabbing at him. You know, that pedophilic foreplay stuff. The kid would always laugh and seem okay with it. He was a cocky little shit, which probably kept me from going too deep with my concern. Writing this, I definitely feel bad not having done anything about it. I don't know, it was 1995 and I just wanted to get back to the store to play hacky sack, I guess. Anyways, Jeff got busted and moved away. Turned out I wasn't the only one he was showing his little sunroom to. So here we are, the inaugural podcast. Today's focus is weird older dudes who do younger kids favors in return for companionship. Moss was the ultimate weird older dude. He scares the shit out of me because, unlike Jeff, he couldn't be cowed by resistance. And I'm certain that my 14-year-old self would have kind of liked Moss. I can't deny that had I met him, we would have hung out for sure. Episode 1, Crazy Dave. David E. Moss was born April 5, 1954, in Connellsville, Pennsylvania. A small town today with a population of around 7,500, but at that time a fair size of 13,000 people. Described by one local paper to be, in young David's time, just a swell place to grow up. David was the second of an eventual four children born to George and Eva Moss. George had been an orphan and was raised in foster care. For his family, he worked long hours at the railway, and by all accounts was rarely home. Eva resented being tied to the house with the kids, and often would take out her frustrations on her oldest son, David. David knew that his mother was very lonely, and didn't mind the occasional whipping, as it seemed to vent his mother, and she would show him affection afterwards. Moss claimed to have an early memory of being left on a table under a bright light for a long period of time. Later in life, he would question his mother about this recollection. To this, she apparently laughed and confirmed that she had left him on a table with a blanket for three hours while he cried. In Moss' memoirs, he claimed she did this because he was being a spoiled brat and only thinking of himself. He also claimed he was 13 months old at the time of the incident, which isn't quite the age most of us consider to be helpless. Surely a 13-month-old could roll or even walk off the table. Maybe he got the age wrong. Maybe he made the whole thing up. Regardless, there are plenty of verified examples of Eva's distaste for young David Most. Eva would indeed leave David alone for long stretches of time up until the age of four. 
she would retreat to her room to nap with David's sisters and leave him in his high chair. On David's fourth birthday, however, this routine would come to a crashing halt. At this time, Eva was caring for three kids and was five months pregnant with her youngest son, Jeffrey. David was extremely excited that it was his birthday. Eva kept promising that there would be presents and cake. After lunch, Eva again left him in his high chair as she went upstairs for a nap with the girls. David was told his birthday would be later. He tried to be patient, but at some point he got up in his high chair and reached towards some pipes that were on the wall behind him. He was thrown off balance when reacting to grazing a particularly hot pipe and went tumbling to the floor where he viciously smacked his head on the tiles. It's worth noting that this marked a typical event in the history of many eventual killers, wherein their prefrontal cortex sustained some kind of trauma, this part of the brain being the hub for processes associated with discerning appropriate moral or social reactions to impulses. Like I'm a doctor. Eva, hearing the commotion, rushed in and found David lying on the floor. She dragged him by his shirt into the living room, where David began vomiting, convulsing, and heaving. He claims he went blind for 12 hours as a result of brain damage. Eva didn't bother taking him to the hospital. She later took him to a clinic when his symptoms didn't subside. He was prescribed nerve medicine. Whatever that is. David felt a change in himself after his head injury. He became less enthusiastic and found that he was more apt to daydream or sit in front of a TV than to seek out an adventure as he had before. On the plus side, his mother now allowed him to nap with the family. He still received punishment, but this now came in the form of being locked in his room or standing in a corner for hours and spankings any time she felt annoyed. The spankings were much worse and more prolonged when his father wasn't home. When the youngest sibling, Jeffrey, was born, Eva suffered some complications and had to endure two surgeries that left her infertile. George and Eva split up at this time, and the kids were left in the custody of George's foster parents. Eva, who was now a single mother of four, with no employment, soon suffered an emotional breakdown and was admitted to the psych ward of Connellsville State Hospital. She stayed for a month. The whole thing was never spoken of, as Eva was a woman of appearances. David's father returned after Eva's stint in psychiatric care. He wanted to work on the marriage. David shared a memory in his memoirs of getting a drink of water one night during this time and coming to bed where the sound of his fan lulled him back to sleep. He could remember feeling very thankful and at peace knowing that his mother and father were together in bed in the next room and all was well for the Moss family for that moment. In later years, he would channel that feeling when in need of comfort by sitting in front of a whirring fan. In 1960, George lost his job at the railway, and the Moss family was forced to leave Connellsville. Eva ushered her brood onto a greyhound while George packed up the station wagon and headed to Georgia to meet up with them. They were to stay at Eva's childhood farm with her mother. The lodging was 19th century. They shared beds and took communal baths, but David would recall this time with fondness. His main memories were of playing in open fields and discovering nature. However, all was not sepia dreamy recollection. David would sleep in his pillowcase when the nights grew cold as he was without a blanket. He recalled accidentally tossing a rubber ball through a window where it landed near his mother. She chased him to a cornfield where he disappeared into the stocks. She stood at the edge and screamed out to him, I'm going to spank your ass when you come back to the house, you bastard child. I wish you were dead. George would disappear to find work and visit a mistress named Rose. Eva was aware of this. David was beginning to look a lot like his father, which caused his mother to project even more fiercely her frustrations onto him. Back in Connellsville, David had failed kindergarten. His IQ had been tested to be between 83 and 89. A teacher's note in a report card said, David says and does so little in kindergarten, does not respond to requests, and does not seem interested in much of anything. Home life is not the best. He took several articles from our room without permission and did not return them. His mother called her attention to this. 
Signed, Miss McLean, May 1960. Jesus. It's a pretty rough report card. Sounds like a note to, like, her superior, you know, like a, like a manager would send a note to their superior about an employee, not a, like a five-year-old kid. At age six in Georgia, Eva would dress David the same as she would the other children who were going to school, then send her daughters off while keeping David home, where he would play with his younger brother. Of this, David later would say, quote, It was really kind of weird, and like I was repeating Groundhog Day over and over, because every school day my mother would have me do the same thing, but I never went anywhere. She had me get ready as if I was getting sent off to school or someplace, but then I didn't go no place. Every morning I just went out back to play, and then back inside the house for lunch, then back outside for the afternoon. Even on rainy days, my mother would send me outside to play while my two sisters went off to school. End quote. He would remember being tasked to pick pecans off of two large pecan trees for pies. Of this he recalled, quote, I picked quite a bit off the ground that I ate, and I could still see myself sitting in front of the porch, cracking them open with a rock and eating them. Those autumn months were the best times of my childhood. End quote. In 1961, George found work in Chicago with the railway, and the family was uprooted again. They moved into an apartment and began a life in stark contrast to their previous. David and his brother were teased for being poor hillbillies. Rocks were thrown at them, insults close behind. They just couldn't fit in, didn't fit in. Domestic abuse began at home, and rather than be in the house, David would spend his days digging through trash cans with his now three-year-old brother to find soda bottles that could be returned for two cents. Dave and Jeffrey would buy candy with the money. The summer soon ended and school began. David, now seven years old, entered grade one, the same grade his 16th-month younger sister was entering, inexplicably at different schools, but presumably to avoid question. David believed he was inherently stupid. He couldn't read or write, but this could be blamed on missing two months of kindergarten and the entire first grade. He began to be okay in school. He made some friends and started getting into trouble trying to fit in by doing things like lighting garbage cans on fire to amuse the other kids. One day in October of 1962, eight-year-old David returned home after school to find his parents fighting outside of their home. George was extremely drunk and ripped Eva's blouse and slapped her in the face. This wasn't the first time. David had often heard his mother smash things or his father slap her around in the privacy of their own home, but this was different. This was in public, and there was no coming back from this display, as Eva was mortified. George was dragged into a car by a friend and driven away. He never came back. David had begun sleepwalking, the kind of sleepwalking that warrants medication. He would wake up on top of the TV or some other strange place and begin screaming and crying completely out of his mind. David recalled waking up soon after his father's abrupt departure to find the front door of their house open and the record player blaring Georgia by Ray Charles on repeat. Later, it was speculated that Eva suffered from episodes of sleepwalking as well, but kept it to herself. Eva took out her frustration regarding the absence of George on David, but now Eva had begun the strange habit of inviting David to her bed after she had been particularly hard on him. There she would take off his shirt, French kiss him, and cuddle and stroke his chest until they fell asleep. Allegedly, I should add, but the possibility of this behavior was not far-fetched in the opinion of professionals who later came into contact with David's mother. Five months after George left, Eva suddenly burst into David's room, pushed him to pack up his clothes, told the older sister to take care of the others, and drove David to the apartment his dad was staying at with his mistress, Rose. To George, she said, Here, you keep this one. I'll keep the other three, then stormed off. 
George let David stay the night. His mistress was nice to Dave and made up a bed on the couch, but the next day, George dropped him back off at Eva's, and David didn't see him for a very long time. Eva's berating of David increased at this time, so much so that David would imagine she was saying nice things when she spoke to him, because everything she said was degrading, kind of like pretending you're warm when you're freezing, or you're full when you're hungry. At one point, Eva accused David of trying to drown his brother while playing on a picnic table they turned into a raft at a local pond. The story went that David had pushed Jeffrey off the table and tried to hold him under with his foot. David always claimed that this was a lie, even into adulthood, when he was admitting to offenses much more heinous than this. He held to the claim that Jeffrey fell into the water while trying to retrieve a ball, and that he went along with his mother's fabrication to stay out of trouble. In another incident that David always denied, Eva claimed that David had set Jeffrey's bed on fire while Jeffrey was in it, and when she entered the room, David was watching from a corner with matches in his hand, smiling. These two stories were used to justify what Eva did with David next, although much later in life, Jeffrey would admit to the possibility that his mother had implanted these memories, as he was so young at the time they supposedly occurred. Not long after the alleged drowning attempt, David received a particularly hard beating from his mother. The following day, she told David to get dressed in his nicest clothes, they were going somewhere special. David was elated. It was just him and Mom. He assumed she felt bad for the beating and meant to make it up to him. When he asked where they were going, she replied, To see a man, and then maybe some ice cream. David got to ride a city bus, which he thought was super cool. When they arrived at a large building, David got his first elevator ride. Wee. They entered an office, and a secretary told him to sit and wait. Soon Eva was escorted away by a doctor and David was struck with worry, believing she was sick again. He waited impatiently until he was invited to the room as well. It was a big room, with a few people sitting at a table. One man wore all black. David realized from watching Perry Mason that he was in some sort of court. His mother began explaining how bad David was. She spoke about him throwing rocks at his sister's head when she was a baby, of how he lit his brother's bed on fire with him in it, how he tried to drown Jeffrey recently, and finally of how she just couldn't handle him anymore. After the hearing, a dissolution young David was taken to his cell where he stayed for a week until he was transferred to Chicago State Hospital, a place he quickly learned was known as an insane asylum and a place to put, quote, retards. He was nine years old. Later, David would say that he should have seen it coming. He recalled in his summer days leading to this that his mother would get him out of the house in the morning and tell him not to come back till five o'clock. His siblings were allowed free reign and he had to ask them to sneak him food at times. David was put in a room with adults known as Cottage Ward 19 while he waited placement in the children's ward. He attempted to escape more than once during this short interval, but was caught almost immediately. He had noticed nurses coming in and out of a particular door to have cigarettes. He got up his nerve, and when a nurse came through, he slipped behind her and out into freedom. He hid behind a bush where the panicked nurses eventually found him. Soon after this incident, he was taken to the children's ward. David was thrown into the mix with around 45 boys and 10 girls. He took in the bathrooms right away, realizing that they were just like public bathrooms, but without the stalls. The rules weren't explained to him, but he quickly learned that all that was expected of him was not to be a pain in the ass. Around this time, it's believed that David's personality began to split. David felt he had a kinder side he knew of as Davy, whereas his tougher side, Dave, came forward if there was a need to be strong in a situation. There was no touching allowed by staff, meaning no affection, no hugs. There was no school as most residents had disabilities and it was believed that school would be a waste of time. A reporter who visited this ward during the time that David was residing there 
took note of a child with a hockey mask under a cot, smashing his face on the ground and making guttural noises. The staff explained that without the mask, the child would likely smash his eyes out. Another little boy came up and held the reporter's hand and chatted at her. This was young David Most, and of this encounter, the reporter wrote, quote, One bright-eyed, smiling little boy who has been holding your hand all this while says, You look nice. My mother looks nice, too. She comes a lot. She'll be here soon. She's here every day. She brings me chicken. She always brings me something good. An attendant tells you later that his mother has never visited, not once in six months. After 15 minutes in this room, you will be angry, furious that any child, sick or well, should have to live in such a grossly unnatural atmosphere. End quote. In the summertime, more kids would come who David considered normal. He looked forward to this, and later would come to realize that this period was due to parents who wanted a vacation without kids, dropping their children off for free daycare. Which, oh man, I find that, I, I've always found that kind of hard to believe, or I just don't want to believe that, that parents would drop their kids off for free daycare at a mental institution. But, uh... Oh, I guess I can see it. David witnessed one little girl die as she was watching television. He claimed to have seen the light go out of her eyes. She was a frequent vomiter, and so went largely ignored by most staff. I need to say here that I used to work in a in a group home. I worked there for 10 years. And uh, we had 8 kids, 8 to 10 kids. And you would have uh, 1 staff to 3 kids was the ratio. Because... As it's saying here, there was there was kids who would um, intentionally vomit a lot, usually to bring their food back up to eat again because they love to eat, or to get attention. There's kids who would punch themselves in the face trying to to hurt themselves. Um, they would have Pringle cans on their arms to hold them stiff. Or I know about places like this, and back then, if there was what 55 kids at any given time. I'm going to doubt that the ratio was 3 to 1 and say that it could have been more likely, at the most, 5 to 55, which is 1 to a little over 10, right? <clears throat> 1 to 11. And I know in the homes that I worked at, if that was what the ratio was and, and the kids were had the, um, the level of, uh, or the extreme disabilities that I saw, kids would pass away for sure. Eva stopped visiting after one visit where she aggressively kissed David on the mouth, and the staff had taken note. We can assume she felt some heat in regards to her sexual abuse of David. She promised him he could return alleged sexual abuse of David. She promised him he could return home when they had more money. Eva got a new man, and money became available. David's social worker visited inquiring as to whether David could come home. Eva came clean to this worker about her resentment towards David. She made it clear that she was angry at George, and the social worker deduced that she was using her treatment of David to get back at George. She also observed that David's mother was quite unstable. This suspicion proved to hold water when Eva accompanied George and his mistress Rose on a visit to see David. David realized later that she had come along because she wanted to see George get hurt by the predicament, which he was. Within the Moss family, there had always been rumors of the sexual abuse of David by his father. To this, David is quoted as saying, If that had happened, at least it would have been something. David visited home once on a holiday, and he spent the entire time cleaning, trying to make a good impression. About this, his mother said to a social worker, I can't be bought. 
After four years and at age 13, David was discharged from Chicago State Hospital and could have gone home, but his mother refused to take him. The hospital kept this a secret from David and arranged for him to be discharged to a group home. Later in life, David said of this, quote, When I left there in 1967 to go to the group home, I think my mind was a little off. End quote. The new home had way more freedom. David had basically been playing in a sandbox, pushing around a truck with a bunch of kids who were severely mentally and or physically disabled for four years, and then thrown into what is considered today a group home, with boys who were socially way ahead of him. Another kid overheard a counselor talking about David and his time spent at Chicago State Hospital. He apparently blackmailed David into letting him molest him. A doctor described David as neither a leader nor a follower. In this new home, David sat back and watched, learning how to behave. He had more freedom than he'd ever had in his life, and soon discovered that most boys were from broken homes and had been taken away due to abuse. David began to feel at home. He also felt a kinship and that some of the boys longed for affection, something he never got. He began to screw around with other boys, kissing and fondling. There was a popular game at this new home that David became addicted to. It was called the knockout game. The rules were simple. One kid chokes another one out, then does whatever they want with a passed out boy. David often played this and pretended to be unconscious so as to be aware while being touched. Around this time, he was also making regular visits to church where he repented for his budding homosexuality. He hated himself for enjoying these games and would regularly deny himself something he wanted or give away something he cherished to punish himself. He would ignore friends he longed to hang out with. A budding masochist, he began to hold pain as a friend. David returned to regular school, although he was at a great disadvantage and far behind most kids his age. He had failed kindergarten, passed first and second grade, then went to the psych ward at nine years old where he had no school for four years. David easily failed grades six and seven, but was bumped ahead to grade eight anyways. David mossed didn't fall through the cracks. He was shoved through David is simply mossed. There's a major shift in his approach to life here, and I feel it's necessary to shave a little sympathy off my tone. Moss was itching to play the knockout game. He offered a beer to a boy, Donnie, to let him knock him out. Donnie was a known homosexual. He once got a boner at swim practice, and the coach made him jump on the diving board till it softened up. Moss figured Donnie would be game for anything, so he targeted him. This particular occasion... Donnie interrupted Moss mid-molest and tried to kiss him. Moss was put off by this. He wanted Donnie to be unconscious and for the whole thing to stay a game. They both got quiet and Donnie didn't want to play anymore. Moss became enraged. He grabbed an electrical cord, wrapped it around the boy's neck and started strangling. He could smell Donnie had pissed his pants. The evil side of Moss urged him on, begging for the complete feeling of power, murder. Donnie's face began to turn purple and his eyes bulged out of his head. Moss side, Davy, managed to talk Moss down. Moss let go and apologized profusely, begging Donnie not to tell anyone. Donnie agreed, likely just happy to be alive. He was clearly hurt and still in some distress, so Moss took Donnie to the nurse. After a quick assessment, Donnie was taken to emergency. 
Moss fed the nurse a line of having found him that way, and as he walked back to his room, he was already pushing the incident from his mind. He claims he had dissolved the vent so thoroughly from his consciousness that when he was taken for a drive a week later, it didn't even cross his mind that he was in trouble until they pulled up to the gates of Chicago State Hospital. Moss was put in the adolescent ward of the hospital, diagnosed as displaying schizoid behavior and harboring homicidal tendencies. The choking incident had been reported after all. He spent his 16th birthday back in the Chicago State Hospital alone, listening to the Blackhawks game on the radio. That year, the Blackhawks finished best in the league, but were swept by the Bruins in the second round. I came to learn while researching Moss that he was a huge sports fan and able to remember stats and incidents from games with uncanny accuracy. I dug a little deeper into what it was like to be a Blackhawks fan at that time and found that it was devastating. The following year, Chicago made it to the finals but lost in seven to the Montreal Canadiens. They led by two goals through the second period of Game 7, but Montreal somehow scored three unanswered to end the game and win the cup. Rocket Richard scored the game winner. The game was played in Chicago. An event that future psychiatrists overlooked. Case solved. You're welcome, profilers. Moss soon escaped Chicago State Hospital with some other boys by breaking through the bars on a window and going down a fire escape. Moss headed to Wrigley Field and caught a Cubs game before heading off to find his mom's house. She had moved, but Moss knew she likely hadn't gone far and tracked her down by asking around the old neighborhood. She didn't want him there, but she also didn't want Chicago State Hospital to know how to contact her should she raise the alarm. She sent Moss to stay with his grandmother back in Georgia. Moss went but ended up living with his uncle, who offered him work and lodging. Eva soon called and told the uncle about Chicago State Hospital in an attempt to sabotage Moss's good thing. His uncle looked past it, however. He tasked Moss with chores, including shooting a stray dog that Moss had developed a bit of a liking to. Moss was also a stray, after all. Moss took on the assignment, but only managed to wound the dog. It came back looking for food a couple days later, and Moss fed it, then took it out to a field and shot it dead. In another feel-good recollection, Moss recalls in his memoirs training the gun in his cousin, and barely fighting off the urge to blow the boy's brains out. Moss visits home, and during an argument with Eva... She pulls a knife on him and demands he leave. Moss returns to his uncle's, but is soon fired for running the company truck into the house. Eva hears of this and, much to Moss's surprise, invites him back home, where she helps him fudge papers to get him into the army. She's also convinced him to send her a good portion of his paychecks so she can save them for him. Not so surprising. Moss soon finds himself training to be a cook at Fort Ord, California. One night, he spots two brothers shining shoes for soldiers. Easy for me to say. He whistles them over and offers them 20 bucks to come with him to deliver a message. Once in a secluded wooded area, Moss knocks the younger one down, then jumps the older one and begins choking. The younger boy runs off yelling, and Moss manages to get himself to stop. He later states that it felt as though he were in auto mode and needed to literally shake himself out of choking the boy. He ran back to his barracks and pushed the incident from his mind, as he was so good at. He was never questioned on this assault. Moss graduates military culinary school on January 8, 1972, at age 17. He's then sent to Frankfurt, Germany, where he soon meets a 15-year-old boy named Chris. Moss talks with the boy for a while, and soon suggests they get together and do some drinking. They meet up a couple days later, and Moss brings a case of beer. They start drinking in a locker room of one of the military buildings, and the boys are having such a good time that they decide to pull an all-nighter. Moss recognizes this as a perfect opportunity to play out his dark fantasy of killing. So after getting up his courage, he pounces on the smaller boy and begins choking him. They topple over and the boy cracks his head off the floor, causing him to go unconscious. 
Moss, as usual, comes to his senses, wraps the boy up in a blanket, and waits for him to come too. When he does, Moss tries to convince Chris that he's fallen down drunk. The boy plays along, and Moss shares the rest of his beer before calling it a night and making plans to hang out again. Shortly after this incident, two military police approach Moss and warn him about going near the boy again. Apparently, Chris is the son of an officer. Nothing else becomes of this incident, and Moss is just thankful he's been able to once again restrain the dark side of himself. Moss begins spending his free time bowling, and according to him, becomes an excellent bowler. He soon spots a younger boy at the alley, who he quickly befriends. His name is Jerry, and he's 15 years old. Moss invites him to go drinking, and soon enough they end up in the same locker room. Moss struggles with his urges to kill the boy, and decides to buy himself and the boy a little time by inviting him to meet him in a nearby wood the following day to accompany him on a fake drug deal. Moss often used the lie of having drug connections to oppress younger boys. Jerry agrees, and after Moss puts up a meager fight against himself, he meets the boy at the predetermined location the next day, and they begin waiting for a phantom drug deal to commence. Moss is summoning the guts to jump the boy when a police car drives by in a street that could be seen through the woods. Moss uses this to initiate the attack. He begins accusing Jerry of letting someone know about the drug deal, and claims the whole thing is ruined because he hadn't kept his mouth shut. Moss pulls a knife and demands the boy take off his shirt, which he does. Moss ties the boy up to a tree with the shirt, and Jerry begins pleading for his life. He's sobbing as Moss presses the knife to his stomach. Shut up, Moss demands. But he's not talking to the boy. He's speaking to the dark voice in his head that's accusing him of being too much of a pussy to do it. Moss manages to step back and drop the knife. He grips his head, fighting back against the pounding urge to kill. Finally, he looks up at the terrified boy who's still imploring Moss to believe him that he didn't say anything to anybody. I'm sorry, Jerry. I believe you, Moss whispers, then unties him. He asks the boy not to say anything about the incident, and Jerry agrees. He lets him go. Moss stands in the wood for a while, pondering suicide. After a spirited internal debate, he opts to go for a beer instead. Most, as promised, had been sending money home for his mother to save for him. He would mail 250 of his $361.20 paychecks each pay. Moss was a whiz with numbers, as I touched on earlier, and his ability to recall historical sports stats. He had a running tab in his mind of just how much he had given her, and looked forward to that nest egg when he was done with the military. Moss soon met yet another potential victim. A woman he bowled with had, in Moss' mind, become a kind of surrogate mother to him. She was a character who taught Moss to play poker and gamble. He described her as having a likeness to Zaza Gabor. Zaza had a teenage son named Richard, who 18-year-old Moss befriended and soon convinced to hang out with him in the woods, presumably under the same pretext as the other potential victims. Richard soon found himself with a rope around his neck, fighting for his life. Once again, Moss was pulled back from the brink of murder by the compassion inside of him known as Davy. He let the boy go, paid him a sum of money not to tell, and found himself once again sitting alone in the woods, screaming back and forth at himself in his mind. Soon after this, Moss Darkside began manipulating its way once again toward an opportunity to kill. He had developed a gambling problem thanks to Zazaz's tutelage, and had run out of money. This had led to a new habit of breaking and entering, or stealing whenever an opportunity presented itself. Moss was invited by his supervisor at work to go away for the weekend with his girlfriend and son. Moss agreed, but didn't show up. He opted to go to a carnival and spend the rest of his money instead, once again gambling. There's a theme here with Most. He won't consciously plan on doing something devious, but he will make decisions that he knows will eventually position himself to commit a crime. He fools himself. Once the money was gone, Moss told himself he'd go see if the family had waited for him. 
To his surprise, when he knocked on the apartment door, the 17-year-old son answered. All underlying thought of the inevitable break-in evaporated, and a new goal and set of manipulations locked in. The boy invited Mast into the apartment, seeing how tired and depressed he appeared to be. After some conversation and a few beers, the two eventually opted for sleep. Moss woke in the middle of the night to bad side Dave whispering in his head, informing him the other boy was sleeping, an easy prey. Moss got a knife, and when good side Davy resisted, he claims Dave began yelling at him with a tone reminiscent of his mother's. You're fucking no good, just like your father. There's the fucking door. Get the fuck out of my house. Moss claims the voice berated him about his shortcomings until he could take it no longer. He took the knife to the sleeping boy and thrust it into his back as he slept. The blade pierced through, and Moss pulled it back out, immediately regretting the act as the boy woke up screaming in pain. Moss began apologizing and rushed to get towels to slow the bleeding. He told the boy he'd been having a nightmare and must have been sleepwalking. The wound wasn't serious. Moss cleaned it for the boy, continuously apologizing. The boy believed him and promised not to tell. Once again, the devil inside had managed to escape detection. Moss started thinking seriously about suicide. He bought a pellet gun and shot himself twice in the belly that fell down on his bed and pretended to be dead, laying there imagining he no longer existed. The more tender side of himself, Davy, was pro-suicide. He wanted to end the evil urges that Moss' dark side had so often willed into reality. One night he tied a rope around an exposed pipe in his living quarters. He was fascinated with choking and was turned on by the aspects of bondage. He fashioned a noose out of some cord and got up on a chair, placing the loop over his head. He observed himself in the mirror, then kicked the chair out from underneath him. He watched himself hang a moment, eyes bulging out of his head, then blacked out. He woke up soon after with a broken cord around his neck, not sure if he was happy to be alive or not. Moss soon found himself fantasizing about murder again. He took notice of a 13-year-old named Jimmy McClister while once again bowling. Jimmy, Moss claimed, was being bullish towards some other kids, and Moss decided he would die for that. Davy argued that he was too young, while Dave bargained that they would wait until Jimmy's hair, which he knew the boy intended to grow to piss off his military dad, reached his shoulders, then kill him. Makes sense. It should probably go without saying, but Moss had mastered early how to position himself to be accessible to younger boys. He was friendly to them, and suggested that they could come to him with personal problems or for favors such as small loans or even just a bum of smoke. Jimmy McClister soon ran into a disagreement at home and ended up knocking at Moss' door, seeking asylum. Moss, in his memoirs, claims that he allowed the boy to stay the night with no ill intention. In fact, Moss actually claimed that that night he awoke to young Jimmy on top of him and naked, trying to make sexual advances. Moss claims he punched the boy and ordered him back to sleep. He then claims that he gave the boy breakfast the next morning and sent him home. I highly doubt we're getting the real story here, but unfortunately there aren't many boys alive that can corroborate Moss' behavior while in his company. I can say this from having met a few perverts in my life. They always try to convince themselves that their target wants it, and that they just don't know it yet. Yet another potential victim, known as David C., who is another child of a military man and acquaintance of Jimmy McClister, came close to death with Moss. Moss claimed that David C. stole a TV from him, and the reason he did so was because he was angry at Moss for not giving him enough attention. Moss claimed the boy wanted a sexual relationship with him. After the theft, Moss tracked the boy down and invited him over to talk. Once in his apartment, he grabbed the boy and tied him to a chair. He then asked, You want to see what it's like with me? Yes, the boy allegedly responded breathlessly. 
Moss pounced and began molesting the boy, and soon began strangling him until he lost consciousness. In his memoirs, Moss expresses that he felt extremely relaxed and full of power when taking life into his hands. This is his motive. He wants to feel empowered, something he never felt as a child. The other part of him was up in the air like a beach ball. Why did he choose kids who reminded him of his younger self? My guess is that he felt true empathy for them, but he was too disturbed to do anything meaningful to help them. So he helped himself. Moss didn't kill David C. When the boy regained consciousness, Moss convinces him that he simply passed out from the sexual activity. Moss apologizes for getting too rough, but is still being aggressive towards the boy, as he's pissed about the theft of his TV. The boy forgives the strangulation and begins bargaining with Moss. He says that he's spotted a moped that he can steal to make up for taking the TV. Moss demands to know where the moped's at so he can see for himself. He already has one and would like to. He ties the boy up and hangs him upside down from the pipe and leaves him to go steal the moped for himself. Moss is successful in doing so, but when he returns, the boy has untied himself and is no longer in the apartment. It's unclear what Moss' plans have been for the boy, but considering he could have just made the boy steal the moped himself, it can be deduced that Moss didn't intend on letting him go. As usual, nothing comes from this incident. He's chosen a perfect target group. Young boys aren't keen on telling people they've been molested or beat up. Around this time, Moss misses a ride to a big bowling championship. His team ends up losing, and Moss is really angry with himself for costing the team a trophy, not to mention a trip back to the States where he imagined he could have invited his mother and she would have proudly watched his bowling heroics. He's in a sour mood when Jimmy McClister approaches him at the alley and asks if they can go riding on the mopeds. Moss agrees and immediately begins laying the plans in case he decides to murder Jimmy. His hair appears to be shoulder length at this point, which was the twisted prerequisite to qualify Jimmy as a potential victim. He tells Jimmy to meet him at his apartment, as he doesn't want to be seen leaving with him. Shortly after Jimmy leaves, Moss exits the alley alone to meet up. Moss had been planning on killing David C., but this opportunity was too perfect to pass up. Moss finds Jimmy waiting at his apartment and tells him to wait until he goes upstairs to get some stuff. Moss collects some shoelaces for bindings and heads downstairs where Jimmy's anxiously waiting to go for a ride. They hop on the mopeds, and Moss leads them down a dead-end street to a secluded area by the woods. Moss parks his bike, and Jimmy does the same. Moss then pulls a knife and begins accusing Jimmy of having been talking shit about him behind his back. Moss roughs the boy up and pushes him into the woods and up against a tree. The boy is pleading with him to stop and to believe him that he hasn't said anything. He even admits that it's possible he could have said something, and that if he did, he's sorry. Moss claimed that the boy was so panicked as he tied him to the tree, yelling over and over, I never said anything about you, that he actually passes out in fear. Moss then picks up a branch or a piece of wood and begins rapidly slamming the unconscious boy in the chest and abdomen with it. Moss described his assault as being about ten baseball swings. The boy hangs limply, and Moss is no longer angry. He feels satiated. He begins to feel pity for poor Jimmy, who he later described as a cool kid. He unties the boy and realizes that he's still breathing, despite the tremendous damage he has taken to his torso. Moss carries him into the woods with the intent of fishing him off, but the boy dies in his arms. Moss finds an old bomb crater and places the boy within it, then covers him with leaves and dirt. The next day, Moss wakes up hoping the incident was all a dream. He revisits the scene of the murder and finds Jimmy's body in the crater. Moss is saddened by the whole thing. He heads to the bowling alley starts drinking and pushing the entire incident from his mind. Military police begin investigating the disappearance of Jimmy McClister. When they talk to David C., 
David C. claims to have seen Jimmy and Moss leave Moss's apartment on mopeds the night Jimmy went missing at around 11.30 p.m. This timestamp becomes important later, as adults from the bowling alley correctly recall Moss leaving the bowling alley alone at 9.30 that night, discrediting the boy and drawing some suspicion towards him. The body is soon discovered, and military police pick up Moss for questioning after being tipped off that Moss was with Jimmy the night he disappeared. Moss breaks almost immediately and gives a doctored confession. He claims that he and Jimmy had been riding the mopeds when he had thrown a screwdriver at Jimmy as they rode, which got stuck in the spokes and caused Jimmy to crash. He explained that the handlebars had crushed Jimmy's chest, causing him to die. Scared, Moss had taken Jimmy into the woods and hid his body. The military police don't believe this story, but not because they think Moss intentionally murdered Jimmy. They actually believe that David C. committed the murder, and that Moss was, for whatever reason, taking the blame. Investigators had discovered that David C. was lying about having seen Moss with Jimmy that night, and they had learned that David C. disliked Jimmy, possibly because he didn't like how much attention Moss gave him. Complicating things even more, David C.'s father had decided to fly his son back to the States when suspicions began turning his son's way. Anyways, Moss had confessed, so they went forward with the trial. Moss was sentenced to four years at Fort Leavenworth Military Prison in Kansas. He received two years for involuntary manslaughter and two years for larceny of a moped. Equal crimes, apparently. Moss was 20 years old. While in prison, Moss became friends with another man named Luke. Moss realized that he was truly gay when he began to fall in love with his fellow inmate. But he was so homophobic, even towards himself, that he resisted what could have been between them. Moss and Luke apparently never consummated their relationship, but according to Moss, they behaved as though they were in love. They hung around with each other constantly, even getting work together, tending to the prison's livestock. Moss recalled these times as a happily married person might recall their version of early courtship. Moss is released just after Luke, and attempts to collect the money his mother should have been saving for him while in the military. He is certain that around five grand will be waiting for him when he gets out. When he gets home and requests the savings, his mother informs him that he has 25 bucks in the account. The rest had been spent on a hot water heater and other upgrades around the house like a couch and a TV. Moss is furious. He heads out to Georgia where Luke is living and they pal around and find work together in lodging, kind of teaming up and taking on the world. They make it to New Orleans at one point and party, always searching for a good time. They eventually end up back in Georgia, settling in with some work and living with another friend. The entire time Moss has known Luke, he has struggled with the dark side of him, Dave, imploring him to murder his friend. Finally, one night after getting drunk and striking out with some girls at the bar, they come back where Luke passes out hammered. Moss, drunk himself, can't fight off his urgings and finds himself with a knife and stabbing it into Luke's belly. Classic. He manages to stop himself from stabbing too deep and pulls back. Luke awakes, but he's so drunk that he doesn't realize what's happening. Moss calls an ambulance as Luke's cut pretty bad and feeds the police a story about having found Luke this way outside of their place. He claims that they had been out drinking, then returned home, but Luke must have headed out again and was apparently stabbed by someone. The story is believed as Luke has no recollection of how he suffered the wound. Luke ends up in bad shape while in hospital and almost dies. Finally, he's released, but goes to live with his mother so she can continue to help care for him. Moss returns to his own mother's house at this point, but Eva doesn't want him there. After hearing a story about Luke, she's convinced that he's done it. Moss couldn't stand being away from Luke. He returns to Georgia, and they begin a relationship again. They begin living together, but Luke won't allow Moss to sleep in the same room as him, which gives us a hint that Moss was actually in a real relationship with Luke where they would sleep together and, you know, do things that are none of my business, but he claimed that they uh, they weren't actually a couple. 
Moss is really all over the place with what he claims to be true and not true. So, you know, you need a salt lick while you're listening to this podcast. Moss can't get anything going for himself work-wise, so he soon moves back to Chicago and into his sister's house. He finds work in a machine shop and manages to get Luke a job, too. Moss gets an apartment sometime in May and is pleased with himself. It's his first apartment. He's 24 at this time. Luke agrees to come out in June once he knows that Moss has everything set up. On the very first night that Luke spends at Moss' apartment, Moss takes out a gun, enters the room where Luke sleeps, and points the gun at Luke's head. He pulls the trigger and it misfires. Luke's awakened by the sound of the misfire. Moss rushes out of the room and attempts to shoot himself back in his own room, but the gun's jammed. Now Luke knows that Moss was responsible for the stabbing. He collects every possible weapon in the apartment and stays up all night. Moss goes to bed, realizing that explaining himself is impossible. When Moss gets up the next morning, he finds a note from Luke telling him that he needs help and that Luke no longer wants any contact. Moss is devastated by the loss. He tries to get him back through numerous calls, but it soon becomes clear that their relationship has suffered irreparable damage. Moss turns to his mother. He tells her the truth about everything to do with Luke and expresses that he wants to turn himself in. According to Moss' memoirs, she talks him out of it. Moss has drawn enough unwanted attention to himself and his family. He moves on in the only way he knows how. He's hunting another young man down by October. Moss soon crosses paths with a 14-year-old boy named Brian. After endearing himself to the boy, he offers him 50 bucks to meet at his apartment a couple days later, a classic Moss move of manipulation in himself of his victim. He tells himself he's doing the boy a service by providing him with an opportunity to make money, and by giving it a couple days, he's planning on allowing his softer side to talk the darker out of any nefarious subconscious plan. As well, by giving the boy the option of not showing up, he convinces himself that the boy is asking for it when he does arrive like a pre-ordered package. Brian indeed shows up a couple days later, and once in his apartment, David appraises him with hooded, drunken eyes. Moss has ramped up his drinking since losing Luke, and is slowly becoming more comfortable with his dark desires. Moss orders the boy to lay on the ground, face down. The boy asks if he's going to be raped. Moss promises him that he won't be, and that he only wants photos. The kid does as he's told, and as soon as he's laying down, Moss pounces and ties the boy up. He hunkers beside the helpless hogtied prey and drinks basking in the power that surges through him. Brian is terrified, and he's asking to be untied. Moss takes his photos, and then, after chugging his beer, reluctantly releases the boy. He hands him the 50 bucks, and they share a beer together. After a short period, he allows the boy to leave, with invitation to come back any time. He's self-assured that Brian will stay quiet. The incident, as usual, isn't something to brag about. Brian actually does return, and Moss takes a liking to the boy. He begins a heavy petting relationship with Brian in exchange for money, and the boy stays over a couple times. Moss can feel himself losing the eternal struggle to his dark side and promises it that the boy will die eventually. Luckily for Brian, his family moves from the area, and he escapes the grooming process to victimhood he unknowingly was deeply involved in. Moss feels intense relief and frustration at this lost opportunity. He promises himself that he'll act more decisively in the future. Moss' next target is a 19-year-old who looks like he's 13, named Scott. They begin a friendship, and soon Moss is doing solids for Scott, like allowing him to use his apartment to cheat on his girlfriend with other girls. Moss feels that even though their relationship has a hetero veneer, the two of them are in love. One night, Moss stays over at Scott's apartment when Scott's girlfriend and son are gone for the night. They get pretty drunk and, after a while, decide to turn in. 
Moss soon creeps into Scott's room, lifts the young man's shirt to expose his stomach, and masturbates on him. Scott's either asleep or pretending to be. Either way, he doesn't complain, and the next day invites Moss to stay the second night. Moss again, that night, enters Scott's room, but this time he pulls Scott's penis out first and does it. Scott doesn't wake up, apparently, and Moss is satisfied that he has his next victim lined up. He knows that Scott loves him, too, but just isn't ready to admit it, hence feigning sleep. Moss begins to have strong urges to possess Scott completely by murdering him. He invites Scott over, and they complete the ritual of getting blackout drunk together. Once Scott's asleep, Moss turns the gas stove on and exits the apartment, where he stands outside the window, watching Scott sleep as he chain smokes. He battles with himself for about an hour before deciding to turn off the gas. His dark side becomes enraged by yet another rebuff, and Moss finds himself with a knife in his hand heading to where Scott lies. He stabs the sleeping young man in the stomach. Scott wakes up screaming, and Moss is back in the exact scenario as what happened with Luke. He begins apologizing profusely and claiming that he was sleepwalking. Moss calls an ambulance and they take Scott away. Police arrive and arrest Moss. He's taken to the station and put in a cell, where Moss claims he was beat up and endured a rape. Moss speaks to a lawyer who, after looking at his criminal history and hearing the story, advises Moss to plead guilty and take a five-year sentence. Moss declines. Eva bails him out, and he begins self-mutilating as he awaits trial. Moss soon visits the hospital as he's experiencing severe stomach pain due to his new hobby of self-abuse. He's been mutilating his belly, reenacting the stabbings he inflicted upon Luke and Scott. It's found that Moss has a bleeding ulcer, and he is admitted to the hospital for two weeks, in which time he receives a psychological evaluation due to the cause of his injury. Moss tells the doctor lies about what happened between him and Scott. He claims that he woke up around 3 a.m. that morning and discovered that the gas was on. He then aired out the apartment, not waking his friend as he appeared to be fine and sleeping soundly. While waiting for the gas to disperse, he claims that he began throwing a knife at a chair near where Scott slept. One of his throws went errant and bounced off a door, sending the blade into Scott's belly. <laughs> Moss grabs the knife and as he's pulling it out of Scott, Scott wakes up, giving the impression that Moss has just stabbed him. Again, please. Moss is moved to the mental ward of the hospital after speaking to the doctor and is soon up for trial. He repeats the story to the judge, who alone will decide the verdict, as Moss opted for a bench trial, feeling he had better odds of convincing one person rather than a jury. Aided by the doctor's testimony, Moss' decision pays off. The judge finds Moss not guilty of attempted murder. Incredibly. That'll do it for part one. I'll be back with the finale next week where Moss cranks it to ten. He actually breaks the knob right off. Shout out to Fubon. Thanks for listening. You can reach me on Twitter at dark underscore topic. Please leave a rating and some feedback if you like the show. I'll read out any five-star rating before each episode. So if you hate the show and want to be heard, the price is five stars. You sad douche. Stay paranoid. Sapansky. It's hard to do. It's hard to do it with a straight face. Good evening. Welcome back. Thanks for coming back. 
I know how easy it is to give up on something today, especially when it uh, demands your attention. But stick with us. We'll improve. You'll have a case file baby in your arms before you know it. I even brought the creepy background music this time. So enjoy. Uh, Apologies ahead of time. We're recording in a section off room. I mean, as soundproofed as we can possibly get it. But next door, there's, uh, you know, there's train tracks. So what are you going to do? Maybe it'll lend a little ambience. Maybe I won't even have to add in the background music. Woo, woo, right? When we last met, Mazda managed to once again, well, when we last met, when we last left off, when we last met, when we last met, when we left off, Mazda managed to once again escape the lengthy stint and bars he most certainly deserved. There's a picture of Mazda on our Twitter page, and that'll give you some insight into as to how he managed to slip through the cracks so frequently. He's clearly not a looker, but he's got that little boy quality. I don't think he ever grew up. This guy commits heinous murder, then says sorry, but genuinely, rubbing the toe of his worn value brand sneaker into the ground as he does so. Look at that haircut. He cut his own hair. With a knife and fork, apparently. Look at those eyes. In my opinion, those are the eyes of a guilt-ridden soul. I'm not afraid to say that I wish I could have had a shot at raising Davy Most. Give me a give me a baby Ted Bundy or Dennis Rader and that thing's taking a long bath, but Moss, feel like that's clay that I can work with, you know? I can mold something out of that. Granted, what Moss did is super fucked up. I mean, if my brother or my son were a part of his victim list, my tune would most certainly turn sour, but I really think this is a case where nurture overdosed nature. Let's remember how Marilyn Manson responded when asked what he would do or say to the killers at Columbine if given a chance. Quote, I wouldn't say a single word to them. I listened to what they had to say, and that's what no one did. Episode 2, Crazy Dave, Final. After escaping what should have been certain imprisonment, Moss begins a heterosexual relationship and attempts to lead what he perceives to be a normal life. He can't keep up the facade for long, however, and the whole thing falls apart in short order. Moss finds himself fantasizing about murdering Brian. I know I mentioned so many young men in uh, part one that it's hard to keep track, but Brian's the one that Moss was deep into grooming to become a victim. Um, he moved away in the middle of their heavy petting relationship and and the, the photo shoots, the $50 photo shoots. You remember? Ah, yes, Brian, yes, yes, yes. Okay, continue, continue. Before long, Moss decides to hop in his blazer and make the drive to Chicago, where he intends to hunt the boy down. He tracks where Brian's at by talking to mutual acquaintances and soon finds an optimal parking spot to stake the place out. He reaches behind the driver's seat and pulls cold brew after cold brew from the cooler behind him, all the while smoking butts and inconspicuously casing the area. Moss is soon buzzed enough to act, so after chucking a thoroughly smoked butt out the window, he cranks open his driver's side door and makes a beeline to the young man's apartment. 
like he's owed something. He knocks and waits. Knocks and waits. No answer. Knocks and waits. Moss feels his softer side Davy relax in relief. Good. We can go home now. He returns to his vehicle with that dejected intention. But once back in the blazer, he cracks a fresh beer, and a calm, cold, determined disposition overtakes him. He draws deep on the live soldier, lights a fresh cigarette, then moodily surveils the apartment, getting drunker and angrier as time passes. Eventually, a teenage boy appears, and Moss recognizes him as Brian's cousin Donald. Donald Jones is 15 years old. He's riding his bike when he sees Moss stick his head out of the blazer and call him over. Donald remembers the wild-eyed weirdo. Moss goes into his familiar bag of tricks and offers Donald 150 bucks to sell some pot for him. Donald Jones agrees. Moss tells the boy to take his bike home, then to meet him at a nearby liquor store. Donald asks how long they'll be, and if he can bring a friend. Moss sternly tells him that no one is to know about the deal, and that it has to be just the two of them. He estimates that it'll take about an hour, hour and a half. Donald agrees to the terms, eager to earn some quick cash. He meets up with Moss at the liquor store 15 minutes later, and they drive off. Moss heads out of the city and into Elk Grove, Illinois, where he tells the boy that he needs to make a call. He stops in at a restroom and gives himself a peck talk and a mirror. His softer side barely has a say in the conversation. It's decided that he'll have his way with young Donald Jones. Moss returns to the blazer and lets Donald know that everything's a go. He spoke to the guy and we just gotta go meet up with him and you're gonna become uh, you know, $150 richer and possibly have a future in drug running. Moss begins driving, but the alcohol is caught up to him and now paired with the adrenaline surging through his body, he's become a little shaky. He passes a truck with some kids in the back, a family, and accidentally bumps it on the way by. The truck's forced off the road, which alarms Donald as to Moss's condition. Moss drives a while longer, but finally decides to hand the wheel over to the boy, who accepts the responsibility eagerly. Moss directs Donald to drive into a rock quarry somewhere in Elgin, Illinois, and park. Donald Jones is concerned about the welfare of the people in the truck that were run off the road. Moss tells him to forget it and hands him a beer before Holland's cooler out of the blazer. They walk into the deserted quarry where Donald is told the transaction will take place. He's eager to get it over with. They sit on a hill overlooking a pond within the quarry. Moss furiously smokes a cigarette as the two of them wait nervously for the phantom drug deal to commence. Moss finally says to himself, If you're going to do something, then do it. Or let's go. He grabs Donald and he throws him to the ground. He threatens him and lies that this is a kidnapping for ransom. Moss holds the terrified boy down and assures him that if he complies, he won't be harmed. He then explains that he needs him to drink eight beers and that if he doesn't, something bad will happen. He then tells Donald that he's going to punch him in the face to prove he's serious. He then punches the boy hard in the face. Donald Jones is convinced. He'll do as Moss asks. Moss ties the boy's hands up with a shoestring that hits him hard four more times, causing Jones to reach the brink of unconsciousness. Moss unties the boy's hands and uses the mediocre bindings to secure the boy's feet instead. He then hands Donald the first beer and demands that he drink. As the boy drinks, Moss informs him of the second phony plan. He claims that another man is coming and that they're going to take him to a house where he'll be kept until the ransom is paid. Donald Jones becomes even more distressed, begging Moss not to allow anyone to, quote, fuck him in the ass. Moss promises this, 
He also promises that he'll share some of the money once they receive it. Donald becomes frantic again, realizing that his mother doesn't have any money and that she won't be able to pay. Moss assures him that the state will provide the ransom. Donald Jones passes out soon after this reassurance, according to Moss. People seem to pass out a lot around this guy. It begins to rain. Moss drinks his beer and smokes his cigarette, contemplating what to do next. He's full-on dark at this point. There's no hope for Donald Jones. Finally, he decides to untie Donald's legs, strip him to his underwear, then ties him back up. Moss pulls out his knife and stabs it hard into the unconscious boy's stomach. Donald wakes up, and Moss would later say that he could still hear the boy pleading to him. I thought you weren't going to hurt me. I'm only 15. Please, don't kill me. Moss apparently fought hard with the urge to take the boy out of there and get help for him, but overcame it, picked the begging, unclothed boy up, and carried him down to the pond where he tossed him into the cold water, bound, stabbed, beaten, and forcibly inebriated. Moss observed as the boy tried desperately to keep his head above water, crying out to Moss for help. Moss backed away and hid behind a tree, peeking out to observe the last moments. When Donald finally went under for the last time, Moss waited till the bubbles stopped coming to the surface, then entered the pond himself, apologizing to the dead boy's face, then pushing his corpse deeper into the water. He then cleared up all the beer cans and headed back to his vehicle, feeling light and relieved. This story comes directly from Most, which is why it doesn't entirely make sense. <clears throat> it feels as though he left something out between Donald passing out and unclothing him. Regardless, uh, the story's horrible enough without speculating as to how much worse it might have been. There were rumors that Most held the boy under himself, but Most believes this version comes from his family, who wanted to draw a parallel to the accused drowning attempt on his brother, which uh, Most always maintained was a lie. Of the whole thing, Most said, why would I lie about hiding behind the tree? Holding him under would have been more humane. Donald Jones was pulled from the water two days later. Moss read in the paper that authorities believed it to be a swimming accident, which clearly was a line fed to the paper due to the obvious signs of foul play authorities would have found on Donald's body. That same year of 1981, Moss assaults two more boys. In his memoirs, he describes the first as a stray, named Mike, who he met in a park one night. He brutally attacks Mike and was later questioned about the assault. Moss told authorities that Mike fell off the monkey bars and was never charged in the incident. In October, two months after the death of Donald Jones, Moss is briefly investigated for what is now considered the murder of the boy. Investigators find nothing to tie Moss to the crime. Moss decides that it's time to move along, so he heads out to Texas, believing Chicago to be a place that made him do bad things although admittedly Moss recognized he killed in Germany and stabbed a man in Georgia. <clears throat> Moss planned on killing himself. He felt he had no right to live after the things he had done. As he drove, he felt certain that at some point Softside Davy would have convinced him to do it. When he reached Galveston, Texas, however, he was no longer suicidal and felt motivated to commit more violence as he now craved the adrenaline rush. The tides were turning. Davy was being swallowed by Dark Side Dave. Moss soon finds another victim while picking up beer and ice from a 7-Eleven. 
two boys are outside the store, and Moss asks if they'd like to come work with him on an offshore oil rig that he needs workers. Both boys agree, but Moss claims he can only take one. He picks the boy he presumably finds more attractive and tells him to hop in the blazer and he'll get him set up. The boy's name is Sid, and under the intimidating influence of Moss's tone and gaze, he bids farewell to his friend and hops in. Sid tells Moss that he needs to call home to inform his parents where he is. Moss tells him he can use the phone in his motel room. Once Moss has the boy in his room, he pounces. Before Sid knows what's happened, he's bound with rope and his shirt's been ripped off to serve as a blindfold. Moss places the boy in his bed, then heads back to his vehicle to get a metal pipe in his cooler. When Moss re-enters the room, Sid is trying desperately to untie himself. Moss rushes over and slams the boy over the head with a heavy steel pipe. The boy begins to vomit. Moss snaps out of it at this point and begins to have second thoughts. The boy's on the ground, bleeding from his ear, continuing to heave. Moss has his customary internal struggle, and this time, Davy wins out. He finds himself to be exhausted and indifferent to capture. He drives Sid home, then returns to his motel room where he falls asleep, fully aware that the police will soon be there to arrest him. When the police finally do show up, Moss tells him he blacked out, and that he believes the same thing happened to him back in Chicago with the stray boy named Mike in the monkey bar incident. He also believes that he may have killed a boy back there, but can't remember clearly because of the blackouts. Moss is charged with injury to a child causing serious bodily harm. Bond is set at 50 grand, leaving Moss searching for someone willing to put up the 10% to free him until trial. He doesn't get any takers and is locked up for a little more than a year before he finally sees a courtroom. Moss pleads to a lesser charge of injury to a child causing bodily injury and receives a sentence of five years minus time served. On February 23, 1983, he's transported to the Texas Department of Corrections in Huntsville, where he's to be held temporarily. He's 28 years old and, by his account, about to endure 18 rapes and a broken jaw. Chicago police soon arrived to interview Moss regarding the death of Donald Jones. Shortly after this interview, Moss is transferred back to Illinois, where he's placed in the Cook County Jail to await trial for murder. Around this time, Moss wrote a confession. Here it is. Verbatim. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mentioned that's from a macro brewery. That's a beer called Budweiser. I'm drinking. Wet mouth quote from David Moss verbatim um, interview. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just. I have, to, I have to go back over what I'm about to to read to you. Shortly after the interview with with the um, police officers, he he gives um, a confession that he writes down, and here it is. Quote. Ever since those two investigators came down to see me from Chicago to Texas to talk to me about the murder of Donald Jones, I've been thinking about Donald Jones a lot, and I've been thinking about the bad thing I did in my life, and now I'd like to have the death sentence. I would like to die. I felt great when those two investigators talked to me about helping me and when they told me I should go to court to fight for help. So then I lied to those investigators about what I did to Donald Jones because they told me I had to fight for some help. I have no right to fight for help because I have hurt too many people and I cannot live with my bad past anymore and I would like to die. I sometimes think there was still hope for me that I can have a family of my own to love, but no, my hope is just about gone and these things I cannot have, but I still would like to have had my own family and if I would have had my own son, I would have never put him in a state mental hospital. 
I would keep my son with me, and I would love him with all my heart, and I would help my son with his life, and I would be there when he needed me. I have gone everywhere I was sent to without saying anything. I was sent to the state mental hospital two times without saying anything. I was sent to the children's home without saying anything. And I was sent to prison two times without saying anything. So now I will say something. I, I say I want to die. When I think about court and that my mother took me to court in 1963 and she left me there and she went home and now I have to go back to court 20 years later and I think about a sad song by the Beatles and the name of that song is The Long and Winding Road. When I think about that song, I think about that nine-year-old boy that my mother left in the courtroom and I think about that 29-year-old man who's me going back to court. Dr. Roberts told me that it was a shame that nobody helped me when I was a boy because I have a bad problem and now that it'll take too many years to help me. So, on May 13th of Friday in the year 1983, I thought it'd be best if I told the truth for the first time in my life. For the murder of Donald Jones, I want the death sentence. End quote. waiting trial, Moss begins ramping up the self-mutilation. He's hospitalized twice, the first being as a result of shoving a pencil into his belly and leaving it there for a week, before the infection becomes too nasty to hide and is discovered by staff. After he recovers, he soon manages to pierce his aorta after sticking yet another pencil into his lung. Moss nearly dies from this injury. After this incident, he's admitted to the Elgin Mental Health Center. Here are some direct notes from one of the doctors and their observations of Moss' condition at this time. Quote, went for much needed clothes fitting this afternoon. Family has promised for the last two months to visit and bring clothes. They've done neither. Patient handles his disappointment well. He's had years of experience being let down by his family. Continues to be quiet, well-mannered, and rather tragic beneath a pleasant demeanor. An underlying sense of depression is prevalent. End quote. Moss begins receiving medication for his depression and is soon opening up to doctors and other patients. Another note here from his doctor, quote, I am attempting to contact the Cook County Defender on this patient's case, RE, converting to not guilty by reason of insanity, prior to waiting for his year to be up as unfit to stand trial. Per my last session with this patient on Tuesday, his potential for suicide outside of a mental health facility remains extremely high. Given the recent completed suicide of another former patient returned to jail, it seems prudent, in consideration of this patient's very serious attempts in the past, to make every effort to preclude the occurrence of a completion by moving toward finding a not guilty by reason of insanity order. End quote. As I already alluded to, Moss's mental condition improved while in mental health care, and he soon was developing relationships again. One started to become quite serious with another inmate slash patient, also named David. For clarity's sake, here I'll continue to refer to this uh, podcast as David as Most, and the new character as David. David was young, 18 years old in fact, and Most quickly gained the young man's friendship and loyalty. David was soon up for release, and when the time finally came, Most was devastated. 
Moss begins falling apart mentally, displaying delusional thinking by speaking to doctors about brain computers replacing people and God having struck down the space shuttle Challenger. This is a 1986 one. The space shuttle Challenger blew up in the sky. I don't know if you... I don't want to date the audience as some other podcasters do. Most of our audience won't know what a what a phone booth is. Kids, a phone booth is something that we used to have before there were cell phones. Th- this this was a spaceship that blew up in 1986. I mean, you can see it on YouTube. It's it's horrible. A bunch of friggin' super smart astronauts blew up in the sky on national television. And Moss believed that uh, God shot that thing down because the human race was not yet worthy of space travel. Uh, he spoke of an Armageddon coming in in the uh, year 1988. I mean, these are all almost uh, valid thoughts in my mind, but alarming talk in a psych facility, I suppose. Uh, Moss is coming completely undone, and according to the notes of doctors, he presents as scared and worried for his soul because of what he has done. A private psychiatrist sees Moss and finds that he's unfit to stand trial within the time frame of a year since he was first found unfit. Moss is placed in the custody of the Department of Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities. Of this, Moss wrote in his memoirs, Quote, back with the retards again. Moss apparently kept in contact with young David as he soon takes advantage of the weaker security and attempts an escape with the young man's help. Moss bolts from a workshop and manages to get to a car that David has driven to the facility. Authorities give chase and the escape comes to a quick end as the car crashes. This incident destroys Moss' unfit-to-stand trial designation and severely impacts his hope to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. The trial soon commences, and Moss is found guilty for the murder of Donald Jones. He is sentenced to 35 years in Illinois' Department of Corrections, with credit for time served. Podcast over, right? No, it's not. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by uh, the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off on limited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. 
All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Moss seems to feel at home in prison. Maybe he felt relieved that he was paying back his debt in some way. He uses the time to mentor young men who remind him of himself that age in the same way he did while free, except this time minus the alcohol-fueled attacks and murders. He feels that he's where he should be. He's 45 years old, and the year is 1999, when he's visited by a prison doctor who's there to determine if he's a good candidate for early release or to be paroled into a mental health program called the Sheridan Program. Moss is 17 years into his sentence and completely willing to continue serving it. After this, Moss writes a letter to the field services office. He's concerned that he'll be released. Here's a portion of that letter. It's dated March 30th, 1999. Quote, I have great remorse in my heart for the harm and all the past crimes that caused in my life, and I am totally responsible, and with all my prayers I am truly sorry. But remorse and sorry are just not enough, because when I murdered another person, I lost the right to ever be free again, and our new laws have headed in this direction. The American taxpayer has had enough when it comes to crime against the human race, and they want people like me incarcerated in prison forever. I like all laws that have been passed within the last few years, and I especially like the laws that protect all people living in society from violent criminals. I believe in these laws, and I believe that any person who harms or murders another person should never be free to live in society again. I used up all my chances to be free. So could you please tell the doctor or any person who, from her office, to drop the commitment forms, and I will be more than happy to sign these forms. No lawyers or court needed. And then, on my release date, take me to Sheridan Penitentiary so I can live out the rest of my life there. I would still like to continue working in the bakery because I have no person on the street to mail me any money and this may be the last opportunity for me to ever earn any money for myself again. Yes, I did. I really enjoyed myself here and I did my very best to learn positive things and the right things for my life. But there are many reasons why I should not be free. For one thing, I'm too old to start over and for the last 17 and a half years this is the only life I've known. This makes me a bad candidate for help because I have nothing and I need too much help. 
And for myself, I really believe that help and support should be for the young and not wasted on a 45-year-old man. Yes, I know I have to be paroled to Cook County, but where would I live? Two of the organizations I wrote to for support have expressed to me that they cannot help and not to write again, and the rest have ignored me altogether. End quote. I'm going to skip over some of this as Moss, there's, there's more to that quote, but uh, he, he even admits to himself that he goes on and on and on about how he won't be able to get out, um, on his feet outside of prison. Uh, I want to point out that it's pretty clear that Moss is speaking from the heart here, and although he has shown himself to be a manipulator, I don't think he's intelligent enough to design this letter as a reverse psychology ploy, um, but unwittingly he's written a really good case for himself to be released. As he's showing remorse, uh, hasn't claimed that he feels he could kill again. And uh, his childlike impression of his predicament is also endearing in its authenticity. I'll pick up uh, now where he wraps up this letter. Quote, After an inmate serves his or her prison time, they go home. But I have no home and no place to live. Since the time of my conviction, society has passed and signed new laws to help inmates who are convicted of violent crimes incarcerated after they serve their prison sentence. I like these new laws. And when my prison time is up, I would like to be transferred to the Sheridan program. Whatever the state authorities decide is best for the public and me, I will be glad to do. Wherever I am sent after prison, I will always be at my best and keep a positive attitude in everything I do and learn even more ways to be productive as I enjoy life. Sincerely, David Most. <clears throat> so I'm going to take back what I just said because, I mean, that sounds a little slimy there. Maybe he didn't know what he was doing. Three months later, Most is put on a bus that he presumes will take him to another facility. The bus pulls into the Midway Airport in Chicago, and he's told he's free to go. Moss breaks down and cries. So Moss is free. Um, he's murdered Jimmy McClister. Served, what, two years for that murder? Two years for the moped? Um, and he, uh, he murdered Donald Jones. Outright. Terrible, terrible murder. I mean, they had to have seen how bad that was. He he had he had bindings on his arms, or his legs, right? I don't know his arms and legs. I'm I'm not sure about that. But the kid was drowned, and I mean, he was supposed to serve 35 years for that, and he's back out. I live uh, in the middle of nowhere, basically. I live in Manitoba, Canada. I I grew up in um, a small town just outside of Toronto in Ontario, but who gives a shit? Now I live I live in Manitoba in the prairies, uh, and I actually live about 35 minutes away from where Vince Lee, the Greyhound bus killer, committed that atrocity on on, on that Greyhound bus. Attacked the kid with. Uh, it's a shame I don't even know his name. I should know his name. The victim's name. Jesus. But a kid. And uh, decapitated him. You know, mutilated him cannibalized him, thought that he had to do it because the voices in his head were telling him that he needed to do so. He wasn't on his medication. He was a schizophrenic. And, uh, you know, Vince Lee was um, put into a psychiatric hospital for a while, and, and recently he's been entirely, he's been released. I mean, he's been put back into, on the street, and he's he's been released. I'm sure he has to check in or, or whatever, but the voices in that guy's head told him to do what he did. And um, medication stops those voices. But if you were a person who had voices in your head, wouldn't you think, you know, 
am I crazy? Or is that really me? And is, is that like a gift? Those voices that I'm hearing, is that a gift? And is this medication coming between me and my gift? And at some point, that mental illness will bubble back up and manipulate you into not taking your medication. I truly believe that. And the idea that this guy who cut this kid's head off and did all these horrible things to him, I mean, they found pieces of him in, in his pockets. My son, who's five, ten, a decade from now, could be riding a Greyhound bus with that guy. It's ridiculous. He should be kept in jail or kept in a psychiatric facility. I mean, you're spending enough money anyways on incarcerating people for no fucking reason. Keep somebody for a reason and, you know, run tests on them. I don't give a shit what you do. Take him off his medication. See, see if you can uh, provoke him into, into becoming violent again. You know, but regardless of, of him having a mental illness, the fact that he's capable of that, there are plenty of people who have schizophrenia. So, so now you're trying to tell me that anybody with schizophrenia off of their medication is capable of decapitating somebody on a fucking Greyhound bus and cannibalizing them? Is that what we're, is that what we're talking about? Anyways, Moss is released. Moss finds that his family has moved from the area, and uh, just as he feared, he's destitute. He ends up going to a men's shelter, and before long, he's found work doing odd jobs, and he's able to afford a motel room. Naturally, he begins drinking again, and seeking the companionship of young men. Moss begins living in a one-bedroom apartment with an ex-con, but soon moves on from the situation, as he finds the man to be too strong-willed and not boyish enough. Shortly after this, Moss gains legitimate employment at a trophy store named Trophies R Us. It's at this time that he begins a new relationship with a 25-year-old named Anthony. Moss is interested in Anthony's gangbanger past. He pumps him for information regarding the disposal methods used to get rid of bodies. Anthony shares that tactic of covering a body with paint to reduce smell was often used before burial. Before long, Moss finds himself fantasizing about murdering Anthony and covering him with paint the way he suggested. Anthony and Moss are spending a lot of time together. Moss has convinced the young man that he has money and can support him somewhat. But once this lie begins to unravel, Moss decides it's time to kill again. He gets Anthony sufficiently drunk, then attacks him with a barbell, smashing the man viciously about the head. Moss considers finishing Anthony off and breaking out the paint supplies, but one of his internal struggles wherein Davey wins the day occurs. Moss drops the severely injured Anthony off at a hospital and waits to see what will come of it. Anthony recovers, and rather than go to police, he attempts to blackmail Moss. Allegedly, and according to Moss, Anthony demands eight grand not to go to the authorities. Moss simply ignores the threat, and soon finds investigators at his door, asking about the incident. Moss successfully gets out of the jam by explaining that it was a lover's spat, and proves this by providing lewd photos of Anthony to prove the relationship. The whole thing apparently goes away as... Anthony failed to report the incident when it happened, and Moss is convincing enough with the photos and the explanation. In February of 2003, Moss is still working for Trophies R Us. He moves into a different apartment building that is closer to his work and landlorded by his boss, Billy. Moss strikes up a friendship with a fellow employee named Nicholas James. James is not yet 20 and exactly Moss type. 
Moss begins inviting the young man over for drinks and feeds him lies about being able to make James into a pot runner. Nicholas is allegedly on board with the plan and Moss promises it to come to fruition by October. Moss claims in his memoirs to have given this length of time to be able to talk himself out of killing young Nicholas James. Moss continues molding his potential victim by giving him money from time to time and when he has some trouble at home attempts to convince the young man to sign a lease and move in with him. Nicholas shoots down the idea, which angers Moss. Moss finds out that Nick has told his girlfriend about the plan to become a drug runner and uses this indiscretion as grounds to justify killing the boy. He begins to seriously plot the murder, and soon has even more reason when he lends the boy his vehicle and Nicholas crashes it. Moss isn't really mad about this incident. In fact, it makes him recall the the, uh, time that he drove the work truck into his uncle's house and the near crash with the family on the way to kill Donald Jones. Good times. Nicholas has simply confirmed himself as Moss' type, a young, wayward man who reminds Moss in some ways of himself. On May 2nd of 2003, Moss tells Nicholas James that it's time to make him a drug runner. He demands that Nicholas come directly to his apartment after work and doesn't tell anyone where he's going. Nicholas obeys the demand, not wanting to betray Moss again. Moss leaves work early and heads home to prepare. Nicholas shows up after work as promised, and Moss tells him that they have to wait there until 7 p.m., when a limo will pick him up and take Nick to his house to get changed to get ready for an evening of partying and set up as a drug runner. Moss begins sharing beer with the young man and prepping him for his indoctrination. I gotta stop here and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, acknowledge that uh, while researching the death of Nicholas James, I felt I felt a real kinship with him. This easily could have been me sitting in that apartment. Uh, watching the White Sox game again, hyped up for something new and exciting. I know for a fact I would have been doomed had I crossed paths with Moss at the age of 19. Just after 7 p.m., Moss sets Nick up in front of the television in an office chair to watch the White Sox game as they wait. He hands him a beer and heads to his room to get a steel pipe. Moss then creeps up behind Nicholas, who is tuned into the game, and smashes him in the back of the head with a pipe. Nicholas falls forward, but Moss grabs his shirt, yanks him back in the chair, and whacks him again. The young man is thrust forward and stumbles into the kitchen, where Moss follows and smashes him over the head again, causing Nicholas to crumple in a heap. Moss assesses his victim and sees that he's still breathing, so he hits him again, this time so hard that he breaks the lead bat. Nicholas is still alive and conscious. Moss rolls him face up, stands over him, and begins punching him in the face. He does this until Nick goes unconscious. Moss would later say that the young man stayed quiet throughout the entire incident, yet no shit. He sucker punched him in the back of the head with a lead bat. Like like he, like he's complimenting him or something. I mean, like, fuck it. You imagine getting hit in the back of the head with a bat when you're just trying to watch a baseball game? Having a beer with your friend and he just smokes you in the back of the head as hard as he can with a lead bat. You're not going to say anything. You're jarred. Moss lays plastic in the living room and drags Nick onto it. He sits and drinks and smokes, listening to Nick's struggle breathing. Finally, he gets up, grabs a rope, and wraps it around the boy's neck. Nick manages to get a finger between his neck and the rope and fights. Moss tries to strangle through the obstruction, but eventually has to give up and release the tension. Nick's finger falls weakly from his position, and Moss tightens the rope again and holds it for a long period long enough to be certain. Moss claims around 10 minutes. I hope he's exaggerating. You watch a clock strike off a minute, and you'll know why. 
Moss strips his victim, then wraps him in plastic <clears throat> and carries him down to the basement. He then drags the body into a garbage bag, wraps it with tape, and sprays it down with purple paint. He then places the body in a corner and stacks cinder blocks in front of it to temporarily conceal it. Moss heads back to his apartment to clean up. Once he's cleaned the apartment, he heads back downstairs to mix cement, then for two hours works on covering the body with it. Once Moss is satisfied, he returns to his apartment and tears down the bloody office chair, ripping the seat cushion so no one will try to reassemble it. He'll dump this along with any remnants of Nicholas the next day, but for now he's tired. Moss sleeps soundly. Next day, Moss sits himself in the basement and takes in the reality of what he's done. He smokes, drinks, and mutters apologies to the cement tomb. Later, Moss will call his own number and apologize to himself on the answer machine. When he gets home, he deletes the message. Fortunately for Moss, Nicholas has been mentioning to friends that he'd been considering skipping town after the accident with Moss's vehicle. Moss called in his vehicle as having been stolen soon after murdering Nick then put himself out of Nicholas's girlfriend's mind as a possible reason for her boyfriend's disappearance by contacting her more than once and asking if she'd heard from Nick. She was further convinced Nick had simply skipped town when his boss at Trophies R Us, Billy, told her that Nick had been talking about going to college to flirt with some girls. Everyone believed that Nicholas James had skipped town. It takes quite a while before he's reported missing. Water begins leaking in the basement, cracking Moss' handiwork and releasing a stench throughout the apartment. Luckily for Moss, a new tenant had moved in for the time, being in the stench was being blamed on this person's stinky shoes that they left outside of their apartment. Moss quickly fixes the cement and places deodorizing candles in the basement. I should mention that Moss was considered kind of a caretaker of the building, so tenants weren't curious as to what he was up to. He was kind of considered to be uh, crazy as well, and was actually nicknamed Crazy Dave by the locals. He'd been observed cutting grass with a pair of scissors at one time and the app nickname stuck. Little did they know. Moss lays low and before long he retrieves his self-assurance that he won't be caught for the murder of Nicholas James and lays down some ground rules for himself. Rule number one. Any boy he sets out to kill has to be older than 13. Rule number two. Never meet the parents. Moss needed to believe his victims were mistreated in some way like he'd been. He wanted to see himself in them, meaning the parents might ruin that. Also, they may make a mental note of a man who's interested in their son, you know, especially a man who has the sloping shoulders of an ox and cuts his hair with grass-stained shears. Moss is soon back on the prowl, still without wheels, but he rides a bike around looking for young, energetic, and slightly wounded boys who could be lured with simple attention and kept around by giving them money or the promise of something glamorous like pot running. It doesn't take long for Moss to spot what he's looking for at a public pool. Michael Dennis, he's an energetic 13-year-old who's in with a group of kids talking and messing around. Everything about him puts Moss into predator mode, and when Michael walks away from the group and heads to the diving boards alone, Moss positions himself casually and strikes up a conversation. He offers Michael a job delivering packages on Saturday mornings, starting a couple months away. 
This is a phony offer, of course, but it breaks the ice, and after they chat for a while, Moss gives Michael 15 bucks as kind of an advance, and they exchange addresses. They make plans for Michael to stop by on Sunday. Moss rides his bike home, undoubtedly pleased to have made a new friend. Michael Dennis doesn't show. Moss knows where the boy lives, so when his patience has run out, he decides to drive past the boy's house and see what's up. When he does, he sees there's a lot of action going on. He chalks up Michael's no-show as a typical 14-year-old distracting us. He believes Michael to be 14, which qualifies the boy as a potential victim, but uh, in fact, Michael is actually 13. Moss gives it another couple of days, then decides to sabotage the whole thing by going up to the house and knocking on the door to meet the parents. Unfortunately, no one's home. But if there had been, Moss told himself the whole thing would have been a wash. A couple of days later, Moss is cutting a neighbor's lawn uh, with a lawnmower, presumably, trying his best not to think of what he's done and promising himself things will be different should Michael Dennis come into his life when, like magic, Michael's there. Moss uh, immediately is back to predator mode and he tells the boy to come to his apartment in half an hour. He's worried about being seen with the boy in public and would much prefer to be in the safety of his apartment. Michael agrees and Moss finishes up his chore then heads back home to wait for his guest. Michael arrives as planned, and Moss goes about asking the boy questions and getting to know him. Moss quickly realizes that the boy is perfect. He has a tendency to make up lies in an attempt to impress others and to combat his own slow self-esteem, something that Moss understands entirely. Michael explains that he couldn't make it the previous weekend because uh, he was in L.A. with Eminem. Moss doesn't call the kid on his obvious fabrication, and Instead, he challenges the boy to take off his shirt and drape the pet python over his shoulders. The boy eagerly accepts the dare and unknowingly passes one of Moss's nonsensical and ever-changing requirements to become prey. Moss manages to restrain his murderous urges, but as Michael prepares to leave, he gives the boy 40 bucks, ensuring future visits. Michael begins popping by Moss's apartment, and they develop a friendship. Moss gives him big brotherly advice and continues to convince himself that he's just trying to help the kid out. Eventually, Michael begins to bring his friends, Benny and James, with him. Moss starts to understand that Michael is a bit pushy and seems to always get his way. He considers the boy, the uh, one boy, Benny, to be a good, kind, considerate kid, which is a rarity in Moss's experience of uh, wooing wayward youth. He invites the boys to share their problems while continuously endearing himself to them by handing out weed, alcohol, cigarettes, and money. He begins taking them bowling and is starting to think he might actually be able to pull this big brother routine off, but Moss's dark side is lurking and it's starting to speak up. One night, the three boys visit and they all begin the usual routine of drinking, smoking, and talking with Moss about their problems. James apparently gets sick from overdoing it and passes out. The other boys, Betty and Michael, convince Moss to take them out joyriding in his now-repaired vehicle. Moss complies, although he's getting a little sick of the boys. When they return, Moss allows them to put on the movie Kids, which Michael apparently enjoys as it glamorizes the life of a runaway. A plan is forming in Moss's mind as the night wanes. He tells the boys that they can stay over, then heads to bed, where he lays and listens to the boys continue to take advantage of his hospitality and fights the urge to kill the whole group. When Moss gets up the next morning, he's proud of himself for having spent the night with three teenage boys and having not molested or murdered anyone. The boys get up, and Moss decides that he's unhappy with the entire mess of the place and 
the situation in general. He soon snaps and tells the boys to leave. He's beginning to feel taken advantage of, even though he's the one who made the whole thing possible. He knows that he's setting these boys up for his wrath, but he can't help himself. The boys return later that day, and they find that Moss is still angry. In fact, Moss has decided to scare them off entirely and avoid the inevitable mayhem that is sure to ensue if he keeps this up. He tells them to leave and not come back. They do, and for a couple of weeks, Moss begins to believe that his relapse with Nicholas James was a one-off. He frequently drinks, smokes, and sits on a lawn chair in the basement, apologizing to the young man for killing him. I guess I don't need any background ambience because I have a, a fucking train driving beside my house. <clears throat> Enjoy. <laughs> I live in this small town where um, somebody once complained about the uh, train not honking its horn coming through the town. So now the driver honks the shit out of his horn <laughs> when he comes through town. Michael Dennis shows back up at Moss' apartment, and the two of them patch things up. Moss attempts to turn his relationship with the boys into an appropriate one. He prohibits any overnight visits and begins planning excursions to take the boys on, things he would have loved to do himself when he was nine and locked up in a mental institution. He suggests going to ball games, air shows, taking bike rides, but according to Moss, all the boys want to do is drink, smoke, and milk Moss for his spare change. Moss is beginning to go dark. He claims he yearns for a good boy to take care of, but realizes all the good boys are being taken care of, and that all he'll ever find are disadvantaged, unruly kids who amount to a pain in his ass. He begins feeding the boys a line about turning them into pot runners. Moss decides to take a little vacation to get his head straight about how he'll proceed. He takes the time off work and heads out to Hilton Head, South Carolina to camp. Michael asks to come with him, but Moss tells him no. Up to this point, Moss believes himself to be unknown to the boys' parents. An extended amount of time together would mean letting the parents know, and Moss is now committed to killing Michael. Maybe his friends, too. While camping, he irons out the details of his murderous approach. He runs all the different scenarios he can imagine through his mind. He decides to leave Benny out of it, as he's a good kid, and invite Michael and James over to discuss the phony pot-running venture. He'll convince them to write runaway letters to the parents to explain their disappearance. Moss returns and makes plans for Mike and James to come over Friday, September 5th, 2003. On Thursday, September 4th, Moss repairs the basement by breaking through the concrete and digging down, creating enough space for the bodies. That evening, he begins to have second thoughts. He calls the Friday date off, sets a fresh date for the following Tuesday. When Tuesday arrives, he calls off the meeting again. Finally, the boys catch Moss in the right mood on Wednesday morning, September 10th, when they call on him at around 9 a.m. Moss takes him for a long drive and explains what must be done. He takes the duo to a diner and buys him some breakfast. Moss claims that the boys were both excited about the whole scenario and more than willing to write runaway notes that Moss would later mail for them. Here are those notes. From 13-year-old Michael Dennis, quote, Mom, by the time you get this, I'll already be gone. I'm running away. Please don't call the cops. Peace, love, Michael. End quote. And from 16-year-old James Ragoni, quote, Dear Mom, when you read this, I'll be gone to Texas. The reason I am leaving is that I can't stand all the pressure. So goodbye, Hammond, and hello, Texas. Love, James. End quote. 
They return to Moss' apartment around 1.30 p.m. Moss bought liquor, smokes, and weed, and the three of them spend the afternoon partying and dreaming of the future Moss is promising. Around 7 p.m. that night, the group starts playing cards. Moss begins pushing the liquor, and uh, by 10 p.m., the boys are so drunk that they can't help but pass out. Moss is committed to his plan. He's decided to kill James first, as he's the stronger of the two. James is sleeping on the floor in Moss's room. Michael's in another room, and according to Moss, so drunk that he literally crashed into said room before passing out. Moss enters his room where James is sleeping. He retrieves a rope from under his bed, then wraps it around the passed out boy's neck and strangles him to death. Moss methodically wraps James from head to toe in duct tape, then wraps him in plastic and ties a rope around the package in order to better carry it downstairs. Moss reaches the basement where he sees his hole is filled with water. He submerges the body and heads back upstairs to take care of Michael. Once upstairs, Moss checks on Michael and sees that he's passed out face first and his nose is bleeding from hitting the floor. He decides to take a break and sits to smoke and drink a beer. The compassion inside of him is a mute shock. There's nothing but the power buzz Moss has cashed in James's life for. He finishes his cigarette, downs his beer, then with a black heart enters the room Michael's in. He flips the boy on his back wraps a rope around his neck, and begins strangling. Michael begins bleeding heavily onto the floor, so Moss stops, gets a towel, places it underneath the boy's head, and begins strangling him again. Michael begins to fight back, but he's too disoriented to do much. Moss relentlessly holds his grip and strangles the boy to death. He repeats the task of preparing and bringing the boy downstairs then seals them both in concrete. Moss spends a lot of time downstairs drinking and smoking, apologizing to the tomb he's created for the three boys. Hammond Police Department Sergeant Ron Johnson, a 30-year vet working with the juvenile borough, is contacted by James's mom on September 17th. James' mother had contacted police shortly after his last phone call to her, but both James and Michael had been considered routine runaways because of the letters they had written. Detective Johnson finds through investigating this follow-up call that the boys have been associated with an adult male named Dave who lives on Ash Avenue. Johnson runs a search of residents on Ash Avenue and finds David Most. He then runs a star file which shares any criminal information tied to a suspect. Moss's murder history immediately makes him a person of interest. On September 18th, Johnson takes another detective with him to pay Moss to visit. They pull in the alley behind Moss's apartment and observe him sitting up back, drinking and staring at the building. The detectives park and approach a ragged-looking Moss. Johnson asks if he knows Michael and James. Moss says he does. He then asks when he last saw them. Moss takes a drink of his beer, appears guarded, and then finally says, Two weeks before I went camping. Moss produces a gate pass from the camping visit. It's dated September 1st, 2003. The detective now asks Moss if they can go inside, and Moss tells him that they can, but not before giving Sergeant Johnson a chill up his spine with his disturbing leer. Officers observe a smell of bleach. There's a python in an aquarium, a weight bench, mirrors everywhere. The windows are heavily draped. In the bathroom, there's a mirror over the toilet. Johnson's heart drops when he sees three toothbrushes by the sink. Johnson thanks Moss for his time and gives him his card in case he hears anything. 
After this, Moss packs up pictures of the nude of nude teen boys that he's that he has hidden in his apartment, gathers up anything that can tie him to the boys, and decides to leave the state. Moss leaves the snake behind and heads south. Sergeant Johnson, in the meanwhile, pursues leads. He's the only person suspicious about the fate of the runaway. Moss, not yet wanted, gets stopped by a state trooper in Arkansas about a front plate missing. The trooper finds Moss to be behaving strangely and searches the car. He finds the photos of nude young men and observes that Moss' back seat is missing. Moss claims that he's heading back to Illinois and, although suspicious, officers release him. Back in Hammond, Detective Johnson talks to Benny, the boy who Moss apparently spared because he was a good boy, and finds out that Moss was drinking, smoking pot, and making promises to the boys. The relationship is deeper than Moss claimed. Johnson realizes he can arrest Moss for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Moss returns home on September 25th and feeds his starving snake a mouse. Moss' landlord, Billy, is now suspicious of David. He agrees to notify Sergeant Johnson of Moss' movements when he sees him again. Moss returns to work on September 29th. Billy calls it in, and Moss is soon arrested on the delinquency charge. Sergeant Johnson is away with his wife while Moss is arrested, and Moss makes the $300 bail with a loan from Billy. When Sergeant Johnson finds out about this, he's incensed. Billy, trying to make amends for this, informs Johnson that his former employee, Nicholas James, has disappeared, and now suddenly there's another missing person connected to Moss. Moss hears that Johnson is out looking for him, so he calls the sergeant and agrees to meet on October 8, 2003. That day, Moss doesn't show up to work or even meet with Johnson. Moss later contacts the sergeant and says he's ready to talk. He acknowledges the extent of his relationship with the boys, but claims not to know where they are. He speaks about his little road trip and about being pulled over. This makes the sergeant begin to suspect the boys are alive and being kept somewhere, and that Moss made this road trip to check on them, feed them, give them water. Johnson begins obsessing and watching Moss's apartment. He requests details on David's prior arrests. They're slow coming, but when they finally do, he's appalled and completely convinced that Moss has done something to the boys. Johnson reads an appeal from the Department of Mental Health while Moss was in Illinois custody. It states a warning that, quote, This defendant has gone so far as to cut his own wrist to get special treatment from prison officials in Texas. Do not be fooled by his reformation. This defendant's violent past makes him a risk and should quantify him to not receive a day for credit. He will hurt someone in jail if not constantly watched. Beware. End quote. Sergeant Johnson arranges to have Moss take a stress test regarding the disappearances. Moss passes this test. Frustrated, Johnson visits Moss' apartment on November 19th while Moss is at work and questions his neighbors. He soon learns that Moss has been doing a lot of work in the basement. A tenant takes Johnson down to the basement to see for himself. Two months since first contact with Moss, Sergeant Johnson stands in the basement of Moss' apartment. As he takes in the fresh concrete and abnormally low ceiling as a result of the floor being built up, he quietly tells the tenant, Don't tell David I've been down here. The next day, Johnson arranges a meeting with Moss' boss landlord, Billy, and together they go to the basement with another officer who has a cadaver dog. Billy allows the dog to search the basement. The dog doesn't get a positive hit, but does show some interest in the southwest corner where an unusual rectangular fresh concrete slab has been poured. Johnson works diligently from this point to get a warrant to dig up the fresh concrete. In the meantime, 
Most, unaware of the heated investigation focused on him, continues to work at Trophies R Us by day and hang out in the basement at night, drinking, smoking, and talking to his trio of victims. Finally, on December 10th, a judge insists on having technicians scan the basement floor of Moss's apartment for anomalies before he grants permission to dig. He also insists on being there. When technicians confirm anomalies, the judge gives permission to dig. Moss lawyers will later find this to be unlawful as a judge must be neutral when granting a warrant. No matter, authorities hit the concrete with jackhammers and soon the room is flooded with coffin flies. A cadaver dog named Ammo is brought into the room and gives a solid hit. Moss is arrested. While in a taped interrogation, he asks, he's asked to share what has happened, and he, uh, he agrees to do so. He can be heard in this taped confession as saying something like, quote, if I get a cigarette, I will. Then he says something that the interrogators miss, but Moss' defense later catches. He says, quote, and I'm not talking without a lawyer, in a very low voice, but it is discernible. Moss gets his cigarettes, then, without a lawyer, begins a rambling confession full of lies spun off the top of his head. He admits to having killed the boys, but claims that Benny, the good kid, had a hand in it, and even goes so far as to implicate his boss, Billy. Moss would later admit that he didn't know why he did this. Reflex, possibly? Moss was a compulsive liar, and was constantly at battle with his dark-sized motivations for self-preservation and depraved satisfaction. After the confession, he sat in a cell, deploring and chastising himself for having pointed the finger at anyone but himself. Moss' final trial begins, and his brother is called to the stand. Moss watches with some satisfaction as his younger brother Jeffrey is shaken down by his defense. Jeffrey is exposed for having taken favors and hotel accommodations from a party interested in making a movie about Moss. Jeffrey also admits that his mother may have planted some of his bad memories of his older brother, including the attempted uh, apparent attempted drowning and the incident where Moss was accused of setting Jeffrey's bed on fire with him in it. Moss is quoted as saying about his younger brother, quote, Jeffrey just wants to be introduced to a million dollars. Jeffrey even appears in an episode of Montel, apparently, although I couldn't dig up the footage. Uh, Eva may have even been on the show as well, which would have been extremely interesting to see. I know I've trashed her, trashed her big time here and would have liked to get a better read on her, but whatever I stand by, stand by my take. Put your nine-year-old into a mental hospital. I mean, I was about to say you can't judge, but yeah, I'm judging, I'm judging. As the trial continues, Moss begins to turn on himself and starts to resent how well his lawyers are doing. They present arguments that have traction, such as the interrogation tape where Moss asks for a lawyer and does not receive one. They also attack the judge who granted the search warrant and his failure to stay neutral during this process. Investigators and prosecutors hold their faces in disbelief as the defense manages to keep the jury ignorant to Moss' previous murder convictions. It turns out that Moss was never verbally asked if he was guilty and incredibly didn't actually plead guilty to the murder of Donald Jones therefore making the case inadmissible. Moss decides that he just wants to confess and put a stop to the suffering of his victims' families. He also feels shame at draining taxpayer money. His defense keeps him muzzled, and Moss is eventually convicted in the three killings, but is spared the death penalty. Moss decides to take matters into his own hands. In the middle of the night, while waiting a transfer to be bussed off to what will be his future home, Moss lays out a seven-page suicide note, braids his bedsheets, and hangs himself, apparently from a clothes chute. 
Guards soon find Moss and manage to keep him alive with CPR, though he's pretty far gone. Moss is taken to a hospital where, after much suffering, he dies 28 hours later. A portion of his suicide note reads, quote, Dying is not my first choice, but it's the right thing to do. Maybe with my death, the families and the people can go on with their lives and not waste energy wondering why I'm still alive. End quote. That'll do it. My apologies uh, if this series was a little long-winded. It's, you know, my first time. May have overdone it. Some recommended reading if you haven't heard enough about David E. Most. Um, an author named Dory Most, who is oddly of no relation, wrote a book on this case called Bloodstained When No One Comes Looking. It's all right. I mean, she uh, justifiably points a finger at the system, but it, in my opinion, she, she holds her finger too long. Maybe she has loyalty to people who share her initials. I don't know. Definitely worth reading, though. I got, I got it on Kindle for Kindle for three bucks, I think. Please uh, shoot me a rating and some feedback. I'll dictate any comment worth reading out in the next pod. You know, f- forget the five stars. I don't give a shit. Just you know, g- give me the three I'm worth. You can reach us on Twitter at dark underscore topic. My home phone number is two. <laughs> Man, if I lived alone, I'd do it for sure. Tune in next week for episode three, where we'll turn the true crime world on its head. I promise you. It's a doozy. Thank you, people. Stay paranoid. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.